is Core Discovery. Hello and welcome to this episode of Core Discovery with me, Abigail Acton. Today's episode is exploring the wonderful world of the gut microbiome, that diverse realm of microorganisms that plays a vital role in our digestion, interacts with our brain chemistry, and even influences our immune systems. The question is, what else does it do and how? The microorganisms that live within our gut are completely unique to each one of us. As humans, we have over a hundred trillion of them. The gut microbiome, as opposed to the microbiome as a whole, which includes all microbes living on us and in us, is gaining more and more scientific attention. This essentially breaks down into two main areas, taxonomic diversity to identify who is there and functional metagenomics to figure out what they're doing. So how can you tell in real time what chemical signals are being sent to other organs by the microbiome? And do those signals change how our brains work? How does our immune system interact with the microbes we host? Can that have an impact on how someone, for example, responds to chemotherapy? And what about other animals? How does the microbiome of a fish differ from ours? And what common ground is there? Research is rapidly evolving and our three guests today are ideally placed to guide us through some of the most intriguing aspects of the work being done in this area with support from the EU's Horizon Funding Programs. Carmen Giordano is Associate Professor of Bioengineering at the Department of Chemistry, Materials and Chemical Engineering at the Polytechnic University of Milan in Italy. She leads a team of researchers developing innovative technological tools to help scientists learn more about how central nervous systems function. Welcome, Carmen. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. We're delighted to have you. Nicolo Gagliani heads a laboratory of the same name, studying the mechanisms of T-cell biology at the University Hospital of Hamburg-Eppendorf in Germany. He is focused on the interface between environmental factors and immune responses. Welcome, Nico. Hi, everyone. Very happy to be here. Molecular and evolutionary biologist Morten Limburg is associate professor at the Globe Institute in Copenhagen, Denmark. He is interested in making aquaculture more sustainable by using tools such as metagenomic sequencing to boost healthy microbes in fish and other farmed animals. Hello, Morten. Hello, Abigail. Thanks for the invitation. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you as well. Carmen, I'm going to turn to you first. A relation between our intestinal microflora and our brains, referred to as the microbiota-gut-brain axis, was hypothesized more than 100 years ago. Now, innovations in technology are helping researchers investigate more deeply, but obstacles do still remain, which is where the Minerva project, your project, comes in. So, Carmen, what is our current understanding of how our brains and our gut microbiota interact? Well... A relation between our intestinal microbiota and the brain, both in a healthy and pathological scenarios, was firstly hypnotized more than a century ago, but it was neglected for many decades. Only recently, it has been re-evaluated, becoming a new exciting hypothesis in neuroscience. Today, we have to prove that aging, bad alimentary habits, poor food quality and stress can affect our intestinal microbiota. Indeed, a huge amount of data indicates that microbiota might affect the brain functionality through the bidirectional communication route referred to as the microbiota gut-brain axis that involves a complex multi-organ cross-talk and many biochemical pathways that are still not completely elucidated. Okay. Um, so what's holding us back from a better understanding when you say it's still not completely elucidated? What are some of the barriers to research? Well, even if the current available data refer that the intestinal microbiota modification 
might impact their functionality, the absence of suitable research tools keep the researchers far from moving from correlation to causation. So actually, if we investigate the microbiota brain communication, we can use uh, animal models that are more representative of the real situation in vivo, but it's very difficult to exactly uh, investigate all the biochemical signal involved or the fate of the biological molecules that can move from one organ to the other. The um, in vitro tools are basically based on cell cultures that are more useful to understand how the biochemistry works, but they are just leader pieces of a whole sh scenario. So they are not fully representative of the complex multi-organ cross-talk that in vivo happens. Okay, so basically what we're saying is we either look in animals, in which case, of course, a lot is hidden and a lot remains not understood because we just can't see what's happening. Or we break it down into much smaller, as you say, cell cultures and we look, but it's it's in isolation. It doesn't take into account the complexity of the interactions, the sophistication. It, it, it's a little too reduced. I think that's what you're saying. Exactly. So what we are trying to do is to create a bridge between these two models by using a bioengineering-based approach in order to represent some key features, like, for example, gut peristalsis, that are not uh, easy to represent in the classical, in the standard in vitro tools. And by peristalsis, we mean the process of digestion, how food passes through the alimentary canal. Yeah. And so how is the equipment that you're developing helping us to be able to see that? And can we see it in real time? If I was to walk into your laboratory, for example, what would I actually see? Um, we decided to develop uh, a new technological tool that jointly represents all the main biological players involved in the microbiota brain cross-talk, both in physiological and pathological condition. So the final goal was to provide the clinicians and biologists working in this area with an innovative engineered platform to allow them investigating in vitro at cellular, at molecular level, the biochemical mechanism involved in microbiota, gut, brain, multi-organ cross-talk in a completely new way. Our platform represents the connection among all the main biological players of the axis and relies on three compartments, one for each component of the microbiota, gut-brain axis, and innovative technological devices relying on state-of-the-art technology known as organ-on-a-chip. So to break that down further, how does that physically represent itself? What do you actually have in front of you in, when you're using the new equipment that you've developed? Okay, so our platform is composed by a kind of holder. Inside of that, there are some tissue culture wells where we can culture different cells representing the different organs. All these devices are interconnected hydraulically in order to allow the mix of molecules produced by one culture to move from one organ to the other and see what happens at each level. So it's in fact, it's like it's like a window into the actual process in real time in much more complexity than we've ever been able to do before. Yes, because we have some key features of our platform. For example, it is possible to live monitoring of each culture using a microscope, also a confocal microscope. So the holder can fit inside a holder in order to allow us seeing what happens in each organ at different experimental times. In detail, in the microbiota compartment, human microbiota strains can be cultured and produce a mix of molecules named secretum. The secretum is transported to the gut compartment, where human gut epithelial cells 
and cells from the immune system modified it, as of course in vivo, giving the so-called metabolized secretome. The metabolized secretome reached the brain compartment that has a complete blood-brain barrier model, followed by two new human brain cell models where neurons, astrocytes, and microglia that are the main cellular population of the brain can be co-cultured in order to explore microbiota effects on brain cells interconnected as they are in the real tissue and cultured individually to investigate microbiota impact on each cell time. Okay, that's wonderful. So Carmen, are you seeing any difference with the way that healthy or, or unhealthy brain cells are responding to the chemicals that are reaching them through this Mm, imitation, if I can call it that way, or simulation of a, a natural digestive process? Yes, because we compared the healthy and pathological scenarios and we observed the same brain cell response to detrimental microbiotic stimuli that is reported in literature. This confirmed that our bioengineered approach and tool can really help in revealing microbiota brain interplay triggers. Okay, so basically what you're saying is that what you've developed is reinforcing what has been put forward in the literature and that therefore shows that your new tool works, basically. Exactly. Because it's doing what it's meant to do. Yeah. Okay. Super. Thank you very much, Carmen. That sounds like a a really revolutionary way of of seeing in real time uh, in much more complexity and detail what's going on. Um, Can I ask our fellow guests, Nico, uh, do you have a question or, or do you have a question, Morton? Yes, Morton. Thank you, Carmen. This is really cool. And I know from my own colleagues here in Copenhagen, they're working with the God on a chip model system. So I was just wondering exactly how advanced you are with your multi-organ chip or model and, and actually which organs of the human body uh, are in there and what it looks like. Okay. I'll try to answer one piece at a time. So my organ chips uh, now can represent the gut epithelium, the immune system, the blood-brain barrier, the brain, but we have also developed a liver model because we have another project that is an ERC proof of concept that um, moved my platform in an industrial environment. And we were aimed at uh, investigating the um, impact of some drugs at brain level. And as you know, the drugs are metabolized by the liver. So it was necessary to also develop this organ inside the, the, the platform. The other question was, uh, how advanced this? Okay, so we have cultured human complete microbiota from um, healthy donors, but also Alzheimer's disease patient. And we were able to use their secretum to see what happens at the cell level. We have seen that uh, the molecules, in particular the detrimental molecules that we have investigated that are the lipopolysaccharides from Escherichia coli, are able to move from the macrobiota compartment to the brain compartment, and we see the detrimental effect there. At industrial level, it has been um, tested, and they told us that the platform was very user-friendly. They were uh, not, uh, you know, frightened in using it, so they had some difficulties. They were biologists, basically. So the idea was to allow all the clinicians and biologists that are not experts in bioengineering to use it. I don't know if I've answered to your question, Martin. If something is missed, just tell me again. No, it's great. I'm just trying to fathom a brain in, in, in this lab dish. A brain on a <laughs> chip. I know. Well, this is why I invited Carmen, because it's so intriguing, isn't it? It's such a wonderful thing. Yeah, Nico, you had a question. You're raising your hand. 
So uh, thanks, Carmen. That was very interesting. Um, the question is very simple. Are you able, are you planning to also culture the microbiota in your system? Yeah. What we are trying to do is to culture the human, the complete human microbiota from also different patients with different um, pathologies. Because as I said, we started with the microbiota of Alzheimer's disease patients. But the idea is that our platform can be used to investigate uh, potentially all the diseases where uh, multi-organ cross-talk is involved. Because we designed the platform in order to be very versatile. By changing cell type or culturing condition, you can represent other organs that you are interested in. So in this way, you can also think about some preventative or therapeutic strategies, managing the microbiota composition and see, seeing what happens at the end. For example, all the research about probiotics, postbiotics, prebiotics could be very interesting to understand how we can use these tools to help in these pathologies that are still very severe and very impairing of the patient life quality. So it's very modular. Yeah. You can just add in a, a section or take out a section and change what you're looking at completely. Yes, the idea is that you have to imagine a, a tissue culture system where you can change the cells, you can culture the cells in suspension, in 2D, in 3D, interconnected uh, by seeding them in the two sides of a, a porous membrane as the biological barriers are. So you can imagine different applications. Okay, that's wonderful. Thank you very much, Carmen. Yeah, one more question from Nico. Sorry, Carmen. I mean, diffusion, diffusion of the molecules, how predictable is that? Is there a point where we would not need to do any more the experiments, but based on the similarity of the structure of the different metabolites, can you predict the rate of diffusion? We have considered this point, and in Minerva, we have developed uh, many um, computational models to understand how each molecule can diffuse. And we've seen a good correlation between our model and the real, the, the real diffusion of the biomolecules we have followed. It depends basically on the molecule you want to see because you have to change also, for example, some um, characteristics of the platform, such, uh, such as the porosity of the membrane. Because if you are using a, a molecule that is very, let me say, big, or have a particular kind of chemical structure, you have to consider also the porosity of the membrane and if and how the molecule can pass through one organ to the other. Thank you very much, Carmen. That was absolutely fascinating and very good questions. Thanks, guys. Okay, so now I'm turning to you, Nico. Immune-related diseases are on the rise and the typical Western diet might be to blame, but all theories need to be backed up. So the Dynamic Project wanted to know how short-term dietary interventions can impact our health by modulating our immune systems. Nico, how dynamic is the relationship between what we eat and the composition of our microbiome, and, and why does that matter? So in a short way, it's extremely dynamic. So the microbiome extremely rapidly responds to the diet. There are very clear studies in humans that just a couple of days of a very a uh, drastic change in your dietary habit dramatically impacts the composition of your intestinal microbiome. Um, and then you ask me why these matters. And, and that was actually the question that we were trying also to answer. As Carmen alluded to, the microbiome can directly impact our health and different organs in our body. But what we also found is that the microbiome is extremely connected with the immunosystem. 
And being the microbiome so uh, dynamically changed by the diet, you can infer that by changing your diet via the microbiome, you very rapidly also can change your immune system. And that's what we have been studying in the last five and six years. So can you tell me more about your findings regarding the impact of the microbiome that could be considered perhaps therapeutic? For example, I know that you're interested in studying its impact on, on chemotherapy and the efficacy of, of that, uh, that process. So what we found, I would say by serendipity in a way, is that patients affected by pancreatic cancer, they have different microbiome if they do or do not respond to chemotherapy. And that's where everything started. And we found that some bacteria that were highly abundant in those patients that responded to the chemotherapy were actually able to use an essential amino acid that, as, as it is, was ingested via a certain diet. And we found, indeed, that these specific microbiome, specifically enriched in responding uh, patients, um, was extremely efficient in producing a metabolite, which is called 3IAA, is, is a metabolite. The name is boring, but that's what it is. And these metabolites is very powerful in improving the efficacy of the um, standard care for these pancreatic patients. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. That's really, really fascinating. I mean, obviously, you've published papers on this and you've shared your findings. Are you getting any feedback from the medical community of interest on this or is it being picked up or? Too many. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can imagine. But, but it's wonderful news. I mean, it, you know, such a natural way to, yeah. This is obviously extremely, um, uh, in a way, also risky, right? So what we have provided into the uh, scientific community is a proof of concept of the power of these uh, metabolites. Now, to really move from the basic science to the clinic, much more needs to be done. This is obvious, we always say that, but especially in this case, it's extremely important because pancreatic uh, cancer is an extremely bad cancer. A lot of people are suffering for, for this kind of cancer. Survival is not extremely high, unfortunately, and that's why we need to not provide full hopes in the field. Absolutely. No, no, it needs to be tested thoroughly to make sure it's completely robust. But it's an interesting concept that you found. Could you tell me a little bit more about the science? Um, so you mentioned that you have studied the molecular mechanisms of T-cell adaptability. So in other words, your research has led to the discovery of a signaling pathway. So you, you touched on that in your last answer. You were talking about the metabolites, but could you break that down a little bit more? Again, for a non-technical audience, but exactly what, what is happening there, do you think? So I need a little bit to step back. So there are those, those were two, in, in a way, independent findings. On one side, we found the impact of the diet on the efficacy of chemotherapy in pancreatic cancer patients. On the other side, we also found how T cells dynamically respond to changes in the diet. Okay. And this is due to the fact that T cells are per se, that's what we found even earlier, are um, extremely plastic. So they can adapt to the changes in the environment. And within the environment, there is also the diet. And as I said before, the diet via the microbiota changes the immune system. And among the cells of the immune system, T cells respond very rapidly to the changes in the diet. Because again, as the cancer cells, also T cells respond to certain metabolites that are produced by the bacteria. They're all cells from, of, of our body and they all respond quickly and profoundly to these um, interaction between the diet and the microbiome. Okay, that's fascinating. Thank you. Nico, 
what attracted you to this area of research? There's, for me, there's something very elegant about looking closely at a natural process and seeing the impact of, of what we put in our mouths has further down the line in all sorts of ways. What attracted you specifically to this, though? So I've always been interested in understanding how the immune system works. And I thought, I mean, usually immunologists uh, try to understand that by using classical immunological perturbations such as pathogens. But I thought that uh, would have been also very interesting to understand how the immune system and the cells of the immune system respond to less classical uh, immunological perturbations. Yeah, something more natural, maybe just our environments. Exactly. And I was always wondering, okay, now I go to eat something. Do I, can I impact my, my immune system as rapidly as if I would take a pill? Yeah. And in fact, you're finding that it's similar. So far, what you're seeing so far is it's similar. Yes. Yes. As very dynamic. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. That's good. That's good. Well, that's good to know. I've done that. Yeah. That's excellent. Okay. So do we have any questions for Nico, please? Yes. Morton. Thank you, Nico. That is quite fascinating. So I can see you have. A strong focus on the food or the diet here, but I was just wondering, even though there's undoubtedly a huge effect of the of the diet, did you by any chance observe any potential effect of the specific genes or genotype of the different subjects? For instance, were there any variation or differences among subjects that got the same treatment in your experiment? Really, Martin, this is fantastic. So thanks for asking. Unfortunately. <laughs> We cannot really answer those questions because, as you know, to answer those questions, what you need is a huge amount of patience, in essence, to really trace these uh, genetic uh, diversities. And, you know, in using mice, you are biased because mice are genetically identical. So you completely neglect that key aspect. But definitely would be fantastic to associate. And I can tell you that definitely the, the genotype impacts the way you respond to, to the diet. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Carmen, yes, you have a question. First of all, thank you very much. Very fascinating and very interesting. My is a curiosity. What do you think could be the impact at lo in the long and short term of the diet of astronauts that are in a very particular situation? Oh, what a wonderful question, Carmen. <laughs> That's such a lovely question. There is a reason. Recently, I read an article, very interesting article. They said that they are starting to understand if the life of these astronauts in the space can impact their brain functionality. And they found something. So my question was, do you think that there is an impact also due to the diet they are forced to follow in space on their health in the long and short term? Lovely question. Of course, I mean, it's hard to exclude the, <laughs> that there has, an, there has an impact, right? So I haven't tested, but I think you're quite right. If I can extend your question, and I was thinking about that because a couple of weeks ago I was hiking, what about gravity? I think, you know, gravity could definitely also, I think, impact the, the, our immune system. And I think we should find a way to dissect how gravity impact directly our immune system and not via altering the way we eat because obviously that would be a very strong confounding factor. Norman, I'm seeing your wonderful system, your wonderful tool being taken up into the space station to see what happens <laughs> with the various organs you've got in the various worlds. Yeah, it's very interesting because I've, I've read something about the impact of gravity also on brain functionality and the impact on gravity on the preerians or the brain um, pathological. This sounds like this is a potentially another episode. <laughs> Gra <laughs> gravity, and then we could we could do all sorts of impacts. Yeah, also underwater as well. Okay, 
Super. Thank you very much, guys. I'm going to turn to Morton. Morton, Hollow Food considered the impact that feed has on the microbiomes of farmed animals. And also, I know that that you're very interested in, in the genomic impact too. So, um, excellent. Last question that you had. We've talked about humans, but the relationship between the health of any animal and its microbiome must be very close. If we are what we eat as humans, then presumably the same can be said for animals. How does that play out when it comes to feeding farmed animals, Morton? Yeah, thanks for the question, Abigail. So, and, and, and thanks for the for the excellent segue from Nico. <laughs> uh, but no, so, so the main challenge when we when we look at production animals in order to to feed a growing population of humans, the the challenge is if we look in the microbiome literature, it is extremely biased towards studies on human or lab mice with very little variation, as Nico alluded to, right? But if we look at the animal production today, there's a huge need for, for replacing the current ingredients used in the feed. For instance, many animals are fed fish meals, but this come from wild populations where there are only so many fish in the sea. A lot of protein and fat comes from soy or other crops that necessitate deforestation in certain areas. So we simply just need to replace this, these ingredients in the animal feeds. And, and we don't really know what it does to the animal health, but here, Obviously, we think the microbiome might have a, have have to play a role. And another example is that the biotech industry is already heavily marketing these um, so-called functional feeds, where they add probiotics, so basically a live culture of beneficial bacteria, like we do in our own dairy products. Um, but often there's just like a one type fits all solution that you would feed the same uh, probiotic strain to all its chicken in the whole world, for instance, right? But I have, uh, in our team, we have developed this new model that is more inspired by evolution in saying that even though the environment and the diet means a lot in shaping our microbiome, as Nico just told us, uh, the, the genotype of, of the host animal are important too. Um, so in our project, in the Hollow Food Project, we set out to study some of the more pertinent challenges in either chicken production or, or salmon farming in aquaculture because we believe in the future we can more intelligently tailor these uh, feed solutions to the actual genotype of whatever broodstock you're farming in, in, in your location. So if there's so much diversity across the same species, um, can you tell us something about uh, species that are radically, radically different? So, for example, your interest is fish. What's going on in a fish's microbiome? Yeah, thanks for asking. So five years ago when we started to study this topic uh, on microbiomes in fish i would say exactly the same thing as in human and mice and again this goes back to the fact that the literature is so biased towards studies in human or other warm-blooded animals that has the constant body temperature and and, and which are nice warm, nicely warm so so actually i can exemplify this through a series of students that i have had so the first student mattis was supposed to to analyze the microbiome of hundreds of salmon, but he never, never, ever managed to actually get microbial DNA out of the samples in the lab, or that's what we thought. So actually he ended up writing his whole thesis about comparing different methods to store the sample from the field to the lab, because we thought we were doing something wrong. And then another student, David, took over and, uh, and, and studied some microbes in some salmon we had where some were sick and some were healthy. And he was also 
getting deriving his expectations from the human literature, but when he like filtered out all the contaminants, so the nonsensical microbes, you only had two microbes left in the whole system. And there were it was really interesting because the, the, there's one dominant microbe in the sick and one dominant in the healthy. So we can use it to wow to look at this. And then lastly, Jakob, who uh, did a whole PhD in this, and he was supposed to sequence and study the hundreds of microbes in, in salmon. And he ended up publishing five papers on just one specific bacteria that, that lives in, in tight association with salmon. So so that's really amazing. So we're talking about trillions and trillions in humans, and you're talking about almost like a handful in the fish. Exactly. I mean, as a, and indeed in the Hollow Food Project funded by the EU, we did what is called shotgun sequencing. So basically we sequenced all the DNA in more than 500 different salmon. And after putting all of that data together, we were able to assemble 10 bacterial genomes. Isn't uh, that fascinating? And that, that was all of the diversity. So coming from wow. redoing our methods because we, we think we're doing something wrong, we have now, it took us five years, realized that this is just very, very different in salmon. Yeah. And remember, fish are ectothermic, which means the body temperature inside the salmon actually ranges by 20 degrees over a season. So that might be part of the explanation, but it's just very, very different. It does beg the question, why? I mean, that seems to me to be the next question. The reason for these radical different numbers, no? Uh, yes. I, and I'm not saying that just because this is what it is in salmon, it might be different in other fish and, and salmon are, are carnivorous. So they may not eat, need as much uh, microbial function compared to maybe herbivore. Yeah, but I mean, that's, that would be the next place to look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, your background is in evolutionary biology. So how does that feature in your research? What insight does that bring to the table for you? So yeah, just to elaborate a bit on the model I, I, I talked about in your first question. So our, our kind of different approach to this whole field is, um, is to look at the host organism and all of the microbes that live inside it as one single scaffold. And part of the literature is referred to as a holobiont. So it means all of the live cells here. And, um, and while we know the environment is really important in explaining the microbes, it doesn't mean that these, these gene, genes are not important. So if you think about us, we are all genetically different, right? When we look at each other's and, um, we also have a surface on the inside. So if you turned us inside out, the epithelial surface in our stomach and intestines is also different environments, right? So you could actually think of the, the four of us as, as, four different types of brains of flypaper and then imagine like a swarm of insects come flying through all of us and then after the swarm is gone it's a little bit different what remains on, on, on our flypaper so the same that happens even though we eat the same diet through our intestinal tract it's a little bit different which of those microbes actually are selected to stay in our environment and whatnot and that is where the host genotype comes into the equation and where this whole evolutionary angle actually can hopefully help do this in a slightly more precise way. I think that's fascinating. I love it when you get kind of slightly um, impacts from cross-disciplinary uh, backgrounds. You know, it's like a, it shines a new light. It's a little bit like Carmen as well, being, a, you know, with the engineering concept as well. That's excellent. Thank you so much. What do you hope the impact of your search will be, Morton? What I hope is, um, first of all, that if we if we learn how the, the genotypes and the genes are important, we will be able to actually uh, in the future predict or even select for, for healthy microbiomes in our production animals and eventually human as well. But my main hope for the field in microbiome research is that we won't lose our humility uh, when we get all these new data sets and have to interpret them in, in this complicated 
context and that we don't get locked into our prior expectations about how it should be and, and, and how it should be, right? So, so it's really, really key to maintain an open mind because the pace by which new huge data sets are generated is just so much faster than our theory and, and, and bona fide models, right? And, and I'm talking out of personal experience here. <laughs> uh, so I really think it's key to keep this open mind, uh, even though we, we test hypotheses uh, when we get these data sets and, and that we interpret them in a more holistic and evolutionary context. But if we do that, I'm also super excited that this field of microbiome research will keep both surprising us, but also enriching us and enable us to tackle our future societal challenges. That's excellent. That's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. It's true. When you get a huge amount of information, you 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 have an urge to just sort of classify it quick. Well, not quickly exactly, but yeah, your preconceptions can step in, can't they? Any questions? I, yes, Carmen, you have a question. I completely agree with your idea to low down our expectation and see what the nature is telling us, because otherwise you can lose the pieces of the world picture. So we have to see what is uh, going on, what happens, and what our experiments are giving back to us. So apart this, my question is, do you think that your method can be applied to also other kinds of animals in order to fine tune and help to fine tune the diets uh, and the potential impact on our microbiota? Uh, yes, I think so. So I don't personally have a lot of experience from other animals, but within our our team, for instance, the whole evolutionary motivation comes from some previous studies on, for instance, uh, uh, vampire bats. So they're like complicated mammals, just like you and I, right? But they are adapted to live on a very specific and extreme diet. They only get blood from other warm-blooded animals. So there's a lot of essential vitamins, amino acids, etc., that they don't get through the diet. So it's only by actually looking beyond the pet's own genome, but also the microbes living inside it, how this is. And then you might be able to relate studies like that to specific uh, dietary diseases or metabolic diseases in humans. Excellent. Thank you. Well, listen, I want to thank you all very, very much for your time today. And uh, yeah, I think it's been a, a wonderful episode because it's all been so fascinating. All right. I think it was very nice to meet you. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this podcast and are interested in the latest scientific research coming out of the EU, have a listen to previous episodes. Follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and check out the podcast homepage on the Cordis website. We've looked at apps designed to make finding missing children more effective, traced the production of glass and related medieval trade routes, and asked what it would take to make space exploration from the moon possible. In our last 28 episodes, there will be something there to tweak your curiosity, so do have a listen. Perhaps you're curious about what other EU-funded projects are doing in the area of microbiome research. The Cordis website will give you an insight into the results of projects funded by Horizon 2020 and Horizon Europe that are working in this area. The website has articles and interviews that explore the results of research being conducted in a very broad range of domains and subjects. From epigenetics to epictetus, there is something there for you. Maybe you're involved in a project who would like to apply for funding. Take a look at what others are doing in your domain. So come and check out the research that's revealing what makes our world tick. We're always happy to hear from you. Drop us a line. Editorial at Until next time.